This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way, and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Equity Mike. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help you break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity mate, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. I, I know I often say I'm excited, but yes. I am very excited for this one. Yes. Uh, we've got an expert investor, probably the expert investor in Australia at the moment, and i um, I can't wait to pick his brains. It is our absolute pleasure to welcome Hamish Douglas to the show. Hamish, welcome. Uh, Bryce, it's it's great being with you guys. And Alec, hi. You know, I've been looking forward to this. I'm a big fan of what Equity Mates has been doing and, and its growing audience. So looking forward to the conversation. Thank you. For those of you who are unaware of who Hamish is, Hamish is the chairman, CIO and lead portfolio manager at Magellan Financial Group, a fund manager he co-founded with Chris McKay in 2006. Hamish is, in our opinion, uh, the best investor in Australia today and amongst everything else is a fellow podcaster hosting Magellan's In The Know podcast. So a bit of a competitor, but that's okay. (laughs) We'll let that slide. Um, (laughs) To kick off today, we will- we're not a we're not a competitor, but thanks for the plug. <laughs> no, it is a it is a very good podcast. Uh, if anyone out there has finished all the episodes of Equity Mates, would recommend giving in the Noah listen. <laughs> As always, we like to start with a game, Hamish, that is overrated uh, or underrated. Uh, which Ren, you want to kick it off? Sure. So uh, we'll start at home uh, with our major index. Overrated or underrated? The ASX two hundred. Yeah, I'll quickly play the game. But first of all, I'd say is you have to take a multi-year view. I've got no idea in the next six months, okay? I'm an equity guy. ASX 200, underrated. Nice. Uh, the NASDAQ 100, overrated or underrated? Oh, definitely underrated if you take a, if you take a view over time. We, we suspected you would say as much. Um, Wall Street Bets has been in the news a lot lately after the, uh, the GameStop uh, saga. Uh, underrated or overrated the impact of Wall Street Bets? I would actually say underrated uh, over time. I think this is a this is a big movement. You know, I believe in the the wisdom of crowds. You have to also be careful about the foolishness of crowds as well. But it's bringing uh, mass audiences to to looking at issues in markets, and you know, and you may underrate the effect. And of course, there's been huge noise around it at the moment. But I think th- this is here to say, and 
Underrated, I would put it. Yeah, nice. Uh, underrated or overrated, the Australian property market? Australian property, I'd say, is overrated at the end of the day. I'm an equity guy, but it's a bet on low interest rates at the at the end of uh, end of the day. You know, it's an illiquid asset class. It's got a very high transactional uh, cost, but residential property has been going up at probably twice the rate of average wages growth for 20 years. And ultimately, that's a disconnect. And the reason it is, is because interest rates have kept falling and interest rates are now at their all-time record levels. So property is just a bet on interest rates staying uh, uh, staying low. So I'd put it in the overrated category. And then finally, Hamish, uh, we've got to ask, overrated or underrated Bitcoin? Overrated. Uh, overrated. Uh, probably probably some of your audience uh, think they may switch off at this point. <laughs> I'm out. Yeah, I think Bryce will switch <laughs> but, off. But, 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 Look, overrated, I would say, you're running ultimately a very large central bank risk here. Um, You know, I know exactly what's going on. It's the classic wisdom of crowds um, uh, issue. Amazing underlying technology and the theory behind it going on. But if it becomes too large, there's a very large risk that one of the major central banks will effectively outlaw it. Mm. Uh, They don't want it becoming a dominant part of transactional activity in the economy. It's not traceable. It's not with the central banks. The central banks ultimately will want digital currency sitting in their purview. And, you know, if the US bans Bitcoin at some point in the future, this thing will go to zero. And, you know, the question is, can you be smart enough to outguess when that event will happen? Mm. Um, um, It keeps going up. There's a huge crowd effect. Uh, in it, the underlying technology is incredible, and theory behind it's incredible. But I, I, I just think it's a very, very dangerous place to uh, to play. And good luck to people. Good luck. Over good luck. <laughs> <laughs> so Hamish, uh, we love to hear the story of people's first investments. We generally find there's a good lesson or a good story that comes out of it. So to kick us off today, can you tell us the story of your first investment? Yeah, I, I'm going to be a little bit cute here. Um, because my first investment is probably not the great one. It's my second investment. I will tell you my first, and then maybe the second one actually has a little bit more uh, uh, lessons. My first investment was at university. It was just after, it was in October 1987, and people have studied markets. October 1987 was a pretty famous point in history where the stock market crashed, and just after the stock market crash, I, without doing any research or understanding much about equities, ended up buying Elders, which was controlled by John Elliott that became Foster's. I ended up making a little bit of money, but I wouldn't call it an investment. It was just markets had crashed and I wanted, I had a little bit of money saved up and I put some money into uh, to Elders. So I, I, I call that just dumb investing. My first <laughs> real investment was probably back in 1991 when I just had started work, when I'd actually accumulated a little bit of money, you know, I was paid $36,000 a year when I started. So, um, uh, you know, and, and that was working in an investment bank, how things have changed, Jeez. even adjusted for inflation, people have paid a lot more today. And I invested in a company called the Franked Income Fund. And people may not remember this, but the Franked Income Fund was a entity that effectively had a controlling shareholding in a company called Wes Farmers, that people may have heard with. And I thought Wes Farmers was a fabulous business and we had a series of businesses and were compounding capital at very attractive rates, but you could get into Wes Farmers and maybe a 30% discount by buying this holding company that sat above it, which was the old farmers cooperative. And I love the underlying Wes Farmers um, business. And I thought if I could buy it at a discount and I'll put all my net worth into this at the at the time, I've actually still got all my Wes Farmers shares. And the theory I had is I love the underlying business, but ultimately because of this value gap sitting there that the Frank Income Fund would be wound up in the end. 
and therefore you'd, you would get a double gain. You'd get, I thought Wes Farmers was trading at a discount to its value and then I was buying at a 30% discount into a discounted value in a, in a long-term business. And, and I put, for me at the time, a meaningful amount of money and believe it or not, I've still got all the Wes Farmers shares. Wow. I've got, I think I've probably compounded my capital since 1991 at 20% per annum by going in there and just holding it for a long duration. So the, the lesson there is, is compound returns and duration really matter. And, and, and probably when you see something that looks like a layup, you shouldn't hold back. It's a Charlie Munger sort of thing. You know, at the end of the day where something's just staring you in the face and it's, uh, and, and there's a double discount into it and you think the business is, is really high quality, you know, those are the times you should strike. And, and I lucky I learned that lesson pretty early on and it's been a very, very, favorable experience i actually think my in, my average entry price into west farmers i know it is is negative <laughs> <laughs> not, not only dividends would be substantial i'm getting more dividends per, per share than than i paid for the original shares but they returned all the capital wow so so wow. i got all my capital just given back and i've got these 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 shares that are worth millions of dollars now <laughs> that are paying me a lot of dividends every year and i got all my money back <laughs> well and, 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 I was very lucky. I, I, I got that lesson early on. You know, I, this was the second year I started working. Yeah. Well, we just did an episode on the power of compounding. So it is perfect timing that you are following up with uh, the biggest, one of the biggest lessons for you is, uh, you know, understanding that power of compounding. Yeah, Bryce, compounding is a super important term. And one of my favorite quotes is from one of the founding fathers of America, Benjamin Franklin. Uh, and, 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 and Ben Franklin uh, said, money makes money and the money that money makes, makes more money. Mm, mm. And that's what compounding is all, all about, putting away some money today and let that money work for you over time. And my investment in the Frank Income Fund was just such a great example of what sort of 30 years can do for you. Mm. Yeah. It's, been, it, it's been a fun ride. Well, Hamish, I think you uh, you get the prize for the best uh, story of the first or second investment that we've heard so far. Um, and I think for our listeners, that, that the gives you- The first was a bit of a dud, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure someone said their first investment was a goat. But anyway, yeah, we, yeah, can, uh... <laughs> we can- But um, I think that gives uh, everyone a flavour of uh, what's to come in this interview. Um, you know, you've got a very impressive track record. Um, but before we get into what you're doing at Magellan today, uh, we're just going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our sponsors. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So Hamish, as I just said before the break, Magellan has made a name for itself investing in some of the best businesses in the world and has an incredible track record as a result. Alphabet, Microsoft, Facebook... Uh, Starbucks, chief amongst them. Tech is obviously a very interesting space for a lot of our audience. Um, how are you thinking about some of these tech giants like the Alphabets and the Facebooks of the world going into the 2020s? It's a very, very good question, Alec. Um, first of all, I'd say that these companies, particularly ones you're mentioning, you said Alphabet, Microsoft, Facebook, they are some of the most extraordinary business models that you've ever seen in capitalism. Uh, in terms of the market share that these companies have in their segments, they're near monopolies, and they've got very, very powerful network effects around their, uh, around their businesses. And of course, that's going to attract the regulators when you get near monopolies. So we could talk about regulatory risk in these, the, these investors. Um, so first of all, you're just in an extraordinary rarefied air in terms of history. And, and I also describe these business models as sort of capitalism without capital. Normally, the very dominant firms of history have got to their domination by having huge capital-intensive business models. If you look at the railways, if you look at what happened in Standard Oil when they when when that and they got broken up, if you look what happened in AT and T and then it got broken up, very very capital-intensive businesses. But these businesses, because they're digital networks, can kind of expand with no incremental capital. It's just it's just extraordinary. What, what can happen? And you've asked your question, sort of what is the outlook for these companies for the 2020s, which is a very good way to, 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 to frame it. On, on, on Microsoft, you know, it's really about the ongoing digitalization of enterprises in the world. You know, they have the largest software as a service known as SaaS in, in, in the world, and the SaaS space is on fire, but Office 365, so when you think about Office with Outlook and Word and Excel and others, it's now effectively available over the internet, it's stored in the cloud, and they're adding more and more functionality to that all the time. And, and they've got hundreds of millions of subscribers if you add up enterprise and individuals um, uh, there, and it's a subscription service. Uh, and now you're thinking of Teams. We're, we're on Zoom at the moment, but they own a video platform called Teams and they're deeply integrating collaboration on, on Teams. And then if you think about also digitalization, it's about the cloud and they are one of the four hyperscale cloud players in the world with the Azure platform. And, and they're in an absolute sweet spot for the 2020s, both in the SaaS space in digitalization and their cloud infrastructure business and a few other players in that space, by the way, but, but they're, they're in an absolute sweet spot uh, at the moment. It's our largest investment. We, we bought in 2014 Microsoft at $28 a share when it was wow. deeply out of love. Uh, $28 a share, we made it our largest investment. And, and you know, to that, six years later, it's $250 a share. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, and we've been paid lots of dividends mm. along the way <laughs> uh, as, as well. And we still hold it because we still think it's got enormous runway. So, so this is going to be probably at least a 15-year investment we will hold, which comes back to the original thing I was talking about, Wes Farmers, if you can find these things and sit on your ass, <laughs> and if they can grow and compound. You know, Microsoft is very large. It's the, I think it's the second largest company by market cap in the world after Apple at the moment, and it is compounding its revenues at 15% a year at the moment, yeah. which is just 
mind-blowingly extraordinarily. Our Alphabet, again, it's got a near monopoly in Western search. And what is driving search is what I'd say is the digitalization of commerce in the world. So you've got a massive tailwind behind. You may think sort of their advertising business is, is mature, but if you're a business and you're now wanting to change a business model and you're wanting to connect with consumers who are online, you're literally going to have to advertise and go in the top of the funnel with search. Uh, there, there are a few competitors in that space, but the advertising industry is now consolidated down to very few players. Um, the traditional advertisers are dead and there's a long uh, runway. And then, then localization is a very important thing, connecting local businesses to people who have a mobile phone and they know where you are and they, they're going to know so much about those businesses and the connections of connecting consumers in their physical presence to that local business is a huge opportunity. And then they've got emerging businesses. They've got a cloud business called Google Cloud that is just like the Azure business at, at Microsoft that's losing a lot of money but has enormous potential. YouTube, of course, is is you guys will understand this. You're, <laughs> you're on YouTube as well. It's a very, very powerful business. It's still in very early stages of its, its monetization, augmented and virtual reality in the future, AI, quantum computing, and then you've got autonomous cars. So, so, so there are so many aspects of Alphabet. It's just not the 2020s. It's probably the 2030s. It's just simply one of the most advantaged companies on the on the planet. Facebook is the third one. Yeah, it's a slightly narrower, to be honest. It's, it's not quite the breadth um, there. It's much more just an advertising uh, business. But even their advertising businesses, yeah, Instagram hasn't been fully monetized and their messaging platforms, Messenger and WhatsApp, haven't been monetized uh, at all at the moment. And of course, as a social network, uh, they're, they're very, very dominant. But I would say slightly narrower business model than, than Alphabet and Microsoft uh, is. We got uh, blocked from Facebook this morning, though, after these new rules have come in, you know, with the with the news and whatnot with the Australian government. Facebook have clumped us into the the uh, section of, uh, I guess, a news outlet, and we can no longer speak to our audience through Facebook. So, damn them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got a sympathy for the Australian government around around the importance of of, of media here. Um, I'm not sure I fully agree with the way the government's been attacking it. And, and you know, Google and Facebook are responding in different ways to, to that legislation. And I don't fundamentally bl- blame Facebook either about their decision. You know, these are complex issues and they're making choices. And I think it's just unfortunate. So, Hamish, uh, there, you, you just spoke about the outlook for uh, some of those big companies, especially Microsoft and um, Alphabet, you know, with incredible growth um, potential, it seems, in the future. There are a few risks that uh, are on the horizon around uh, antitrust regulation or um, increased regulation in the states. Uh, there's some talk um, from some fund managers around digital decolonization where uh, you know those US big tech companies are being challenged by local tech companies. How do you think about some of these challenges for the big tech uh, companies going into the next decade? Yeah, decolonization is just another simple word for competition. It's localized competition mm. uh, against them. But decolonization is a much fancier term. Uh, it's much more intellectual it to is. use that word than local competition. <laughs> At the end of the day, it really depends how advanced the development is of those digital markets in those various economies around the world. Is there a chance where the game's still being played out? where effectively local competitors could either be sponsored in Russia or India or Brazil or wherever this may be, 
and create business models. I, I would say in search, it's probably the game's been played out. You know, I, I think someone launching a search engine in Brazil, good frigging luck to them <laughs> at the end of the day. I, I just don't see that as a, a major risk. I, I don't think Microsoft is going to be seriously challenged, you know, decolonization with in cloud infrastructure, you know, trying to build your local infrastructure in Brazil or something and take on Azure and AWS and things. So I, I think it's fanciful that's <laughs> going to happen. But e-commerce is, is a very intensely competitive game and, and it's a very local game. So notwithstanding Amazon's complete domination in, in the United States, it's had very, very hard to get traction in a lot of other markets. And there are some very, very good businesses who have been building in Southeast Asia and Latin South America that are very, very competitive in the e-commerce um, uh, sphere. So, so to me, there's always competition. But, but if the game's played out, the game is, is played out. Probably in our hand, I'm probably not as worried about that sort of local competition issue. But, you know, we own some very big platforms in China and there's a lot of internal competition in e-commerce, let me tell you. Um, a, a lot's going on in that space. On the threat of regulation, it's omnipresent. You know, it, it's present everywhere in the world. There are very serious big public policy issues when you get very, very dominant firms uh, occurring and the regulators are right to look at this, uh, at these topics, whether they be privacy or content or purely anti-competitive behaviours. Do we think they're going to clip their wings? Yeah, they're going to clip their wings. We're less concerned about Microsoft. And it's interesting, in the 2000s, Microsoft was actually the anti-competitive zone where all the regulators were after. But it's largely a large business company. It doesn't really compete in the consumer space. And it's really not in the viewfinder of the, the regulators. But, but Alphabet and Facebook and the Chinese tech companies and Amazon and Apple, because of their domination and some of their activities could be viewed as anti-competitive, of course there is going to be regulatory action. And we spend a lot of time thinking about that. And the job is to say is where do you think the bull's headed and is it in the price? Mm. How much do you think it's going to affect the business model? So we're not losing a lot of sleep at the current prices of the ones we're owned about the regulatory risk. But it's a it's a super, super important issue to get your mind around. Mm, mm. So Hamish, everyone obviously knows the big names, the Alphabets, Microsofts, et cetera. But are, are there any lesser known companies that are you know, you're really finding particularly compelling at the moment. Um, Without this is away, a I really pay. good fry price. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, 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 I'm not going to give stock tips about names we don't know. You know, at, at the at the end of the day, and, and there's for various reasons. Obviously, there there is genuine competitive reasons for doing that, but there also, if we don't, if we if I held something and we hadn't disclosed it yet, and I would disclose it on the thing, and anyone goes to buy, people could actually say what would be my motivations for doing that? You know? sure, so sure. so <laughs> we, we just can't get caught in that game. But there are things we've recently bought that people may not be that aware of. One is very well-known that we've bought and one is probably really lesser-known. The really well-known business is Netflix, which is now coming to our, our portfolio. And again, this is the compound story. This is the 10-year story of how we think that industry is going to play out. And even though this business is now worth $200 billion, you know, we think over the next decade, we're going to make a serious amount of money by being in Netflix. I have no idea where the share price is going in the next six months, and that will just be about subscriber growth in the in the short term. The business that's lesser known, and actually I did an In The Know podcast, which will release shortly, with Jeff Sprecker, who is the chairman and chief executive of Intercontinental Exchange, and he truly is one of the great entrepreneurs of the last 20 years. He's one of the great founders. He actually bought 
uh, a business called Continental Power Exchange. And he bought the business for $1 in 1997. He then listed the business on the New York Stock Exchange in 2005. And for 15 years now, that business since listing has compounded at 17% a year. He now owns the New York Stock Exchange as well. And it's one of the (laughs) top two exchanges in in the world. And he started with $1. Um, it's a little bit cheeky. He actually, there was $2 million of debt that he wasn't responsible for, but that, that has been turned into now a 65 billion US dollar business. And now he's, he, he, he's identified, he's effectively looking to digitalize and create a marketplace or an exchange over the whole mortgage industry in the United States wow. to effectively take a very paper and analog process and digitalize the whole application and closing process of mortgages, including linking all lawyers and brokers and banks and everything into a network, and then effectively getting the data from that and digitalizing mortgage data for financial markets. It's absolutely visionary. And the nature of these things, you probably almost get a monopoly if you end. And he's a visionary person. I, I just don't think this is in the price at all. To be honest, I think this business is probably going to be become as big as the whole of the current intercontinental exchange, and he's got such a track record wow. of doing this. So, you know, there is one people probably haven't thought about. They've probably never heard of Jeff Sprecker. And, you know, I put Jeff Sprecker up there with uh, Jeff Bezos. You know, he, mm. he's one of the true visionaries of, a, of an industry. And, you know, maybe people want to watch in the know. He's going to be on our next episode. He, he's a remarkable individual. That's fascinating, Hamish. I've got to ask a follow-up about Netflix because, um, you know, we've we've watched the journey. Um, it's a compelling company, but the market is becoming incredibly fragmented and uh, oversaturated, I guess you could say, especially in the US with the number of streaming services. So what's the, uh, what's the thesis there for Netflix and how do you think they sort of continue to separate from the competition? Yeah, there's ultimately a scale game, and you, you, you're right. There's a there's a number of content houses who are now putting out streaming uh, services. Sort of all the content producers are now putting out streaming services there in the United uh, States. You know, the thesis on Netflix is effectively the the broadcast television industry and the pay television industry is in terminal decline. In the United States, you know, there's a hundred million subscribers to pay television, and they're paying ninety plus dollars a month for their pay television. That money is all up for grabs. So, and that's going to zero. Pay television on a global basis is going to disappear because it has a virtuous cycle on the way up. The more users you get in pay television, the more you can pay for the content, and it becomes a virtuous circle. But as soon as you start losing subscribers, you lose the ability to pay for the content. And once you lose to pay for the content, you either have to put your prices up more or you have less content. And that's a vicious cycle. So pay television is going to zero and all that money is going to head into into, into streaming. Uh, Netflix and Disney have such an advantage here in terms of the scale of, of where their content budgets are. And if you look in the last year, you say the top watch television series in America last year, the top 10, nine were from Netflix. If you look at the Emmy Awards, 35% of all Emmy Awards were nominated to Netflix. So I think they had 35 or 36 nominations in the Emmys Awards. The next closest content producer had nine. 
just to put the scale advantage. So they're going to keep scaling up their content on a global basis. And the competitors are outside Disney, they're not doing it global. They're producing US content, okay? And quite a lot of that US content, like The Office and other things, people are signing up for these things at the moment because they know this current content and they want to watch it. But once they've watched what they've watched, I suspect the churn's going to be pretty high on a lot of these others. And if you look at Netflix, some of these series that they've done, if you look at Lupin, that was that was produced in France for France. So it was a local French one and it's gone global on Netflix. If you look at what happened, Money Heist, it was a, it was a series that was done in Spain for the Spanish audience. If you look at what Narcos was done, that was done for Mexico and it's gone global. If you look at if you look at Bridgerton that is being done, if you if you look at some of their, their series they've just released this year, stuff you've never even heard of have become massive, 65 million people watching them in the in the first week. So what I would say is because they've got such a scale in so many markets, they get this massive global, it's just not a US game. The other people are playing out a US game and they're competing for that US stuff. Unless they can scale that content budgets very, very dramatically and take it global, I think that Netflix and Disney are going to be the centre of people's bundles, okay? And because they'll keep producing this content and these hits, you get enormous value out of Netflix. I just don't think people are going to switch off Netflix. And a very simple analysis on Netflix, 200 million subscribers at the moment, slightly more than 200 million. If you look, last year they had a lot of subscribers because of the pandemic. We were sitting in houses. They got 37 million subscribers last year on a global basis. But let's say they average 20 to 30 million. At the lower end of that, they probably get to 400 million sort of households in a decade's time. And then it all comes to pricing. Pay television has average pricing of 6% per annum, which is very unique, three times inflation. Even if you do much more modest numbers, they're currently getting about $11 a month on average on global for their Netflix subscription. If you ran it at $20 a month out a decade ahead, um, um, if you made that assumption, this would have $100 billion a year of revenue. Wow. Maybe their total cost and their content's $50 billion. This is $50 billion pre-tax. Netflix would be worth at least a trillion dollars then in the future. So what's happening is you, whilst all these other supplying is all this money that's in pay television is all up for grabs. And Netflix and Disney are definitely going to be two people standing. There will people, because they've been spending $90 a month, they're going to sign up to Hulu or sign up to Peacock and and others, or you stand and some, some some other things. They're not going to be. It's not going to be a sole thing, but there's going to be a bundle people put together, and the scale of the content that Netflix has is. I just think in most people's bundle, Netflix is always there, and then it turns into an oligopoly for the next thirty to forty years, in in my opinion. So this is the broadcast television or pay television for the next thirty years, and Netflix is in the center. Disney's in a. In, it's not as pure play, but Disney's got amazing scaled content as well. And the rest of the guys have got kind of content that people have been watching and want to watch the rest of the series. But how much are they going to scale new content is the real question. Or are people just going to come in and out of them, sign up for a month and then turn the subscriptions off and just watch what they want to watch on some of these other services? It's a, it's a scale game. And Netflix is just way in advance of, of nearly everybody else at the moment. And and Reed isn't, isn't going to stop. He's going to keep scaling. Mm. Fascinating. 
So, Hamish, let's move to China. Um, within Magellan's portfolio, there are some, you know, you've got Tencent and uh, you did have Alibaba, but correct me if I'm wrong on that. And, you know, we've seen the impact that China can have on domestic companies here. Treasury Wine is an example. Um, so, how do you think about investing in China more more generally? And uh, then we can go from there. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. The first question I'd ask is, why are we interested in investing in China? And then how to invest in China and what are the risks? Um, uh, the first thing is why are we interested in China? You know, China is going to become the largest consumption economy in the world and, and betting against China would be a seriously bad thing mm. to do. There are very, very few places in the world where you can get growth in what's enduring growth economically. And China is one of the most exciting places taking a 10 to 20 year view of the development of their consumption uh, economy. It's driven by urbanisation. It's driven by ongoing wealth creation in China. And getting China right over the next 10 to 20 years is a very, very important thing in your investment portfolios. So that's a drive. There is a growth drive sitting there that's going to generate an enormous amount of sort of shareholder wealth. The question is, how do we participate in, in that? And your question around Treasury wine estates is a very good one because you need a diversified approach because of the of the risks. And you're right, we own Alibaba and Tencent, two of the best companies in China, but we also have very large investments in Starbucks. Uh, we're also invested in LVMH and Estee Lauder. So we've got Western firms who have amazing businesses in China, and those businesses in China are growing at 30% a year. You know, and, and they're becoming very, very large components of, of the valuations of, of those Western firms. But they can get caught up in the geopolitical risks between China and the United States or China and Europe or China and Australia at the moment. So you don't want to have all your eggs. You may feel you feel more comfortable about just owning a Starbucks to approach China because it's easier to speak to the management teams and everything else and you think the accounts are easier. But there are geopolitical risks if there are tensions between the countries where China could take action against companies in retaliation to geopolitical issues. And we're seeing that with Australia at the moment. So you just have to be mindful of those. That's one risk in investing in China. The second major risk in investing in China is what I'd call the, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party political risks. Have no misapprehension who's in control here. Mm. It is the Communist Party. You know, if you go there and you assume something else, you're making an incorrect assumption. From time to time, the Communist Party is going to intervene against businesses if they're doing things that they think are against the party's interests or against the country's interests. At the end, and we're seeing that with Alibaba at the moment after Jack Ma made those comments just before the end. Um, IPO. I didn't predict Jack would be so stupid to make those comments, yeah. <laughs> but I could predict what the Communist Party would do after he made those comments. You know, so 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 we, we're we're aware of those risks. Of course, there are regulatory risks operating in China um, here, but the regulatory risks I don't think are fundamentally different to the regulatory risks elsewhere you'd face by owning a very dominant company. Facebook's facing regulatory risks. Alibaba's facing regulatory risks, and 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 you know they're equally as important in both companies. And the last risk about China is, of course, just reputational uh, risks. They could be about human rights issues or, or other issues, and you need to think and take. Particularly if you're doing things in a public sense like we are, we need to really think about you know the companies, how they're operating, what they're doing, where where they are, and you know are they doing things that that, that really are socially bad or socially 
good and we make judgments. Not everyone may want to agree with our judgments on those things, but we think about those issues. So you need to diversify yourself. But I, but I would say getting access to the China growth story is a very, very important thing to get right over the next 5, 10, 20 uh, 20 years, and we're doing it in a multifaceted way at at at, at Magellan. We're just not in phase, we're just not in Tencent and Alibaba. They're 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 meaningful investments. But as I say, we've got big investments in things like Starbucks and LBMH, and you know Nike, which we don't own, has a fabulous business in China. Apple has a fabulous business in in China. Tesla is trying to build a business in China at the at the moment. Yeah, it is fascinating. Before we uh, take a look at uh, 2021, we'll just uh, hear from our sponsors. So Hamish, um, as I said, we'd love to get your views on the outlook for 2021, but also we obviously haven't had a chance to hear your thoughts on the craziness of 2020. We saw the fastest crash and then rebound in the history of the markets. And we'd like you to help us try and separate the signal from the noise for sort of what happened in 2020 and with, you know, unprecedented response from central banks around the world. How, how are you, um, well, what are you taking from 2020? What were some major lessons? Yeah, it's interesting what you take from the lessons of 2020 and whether we're witnessing that it appears many people are taking the lessons. Uh, the lessons is markets can do extraordinary things. You know, in, in, in March, we had one of the most violent sell-offs in, in, you know, if you took over a 30-year period, it was incredibly violent in a very complex situation. Then we saw an extraordinary response of epic proportions uh, by central banks around the world, and then also by governments around the world, in just throwing money at this at this problem. And then when we sort of hit payday on with the with the vaccines, we saw the strongest market rally in November in 47 years. So you know we, we we'd seen sort of staring down the abyss of Armageddon, and we'd seen the absolute euphoria all happen, measured against history sort of movements just just extraordinary. And, and what I'd say is, you know, don't let the markets guide you, but but don't lose the, the side of the facts that markets can react violently in extraordinary ways. And we're in this period now because we've had these vaccines and we're seeing all this sort of government spending around the world that there's this euphoria in markets. It, it's like things can't go wrong. And, and 2020 sort of told you things can really go wrong. But people may have take, over got the lesson is don't worry, the governments will solve this problem. So we don't have to worry about, uh, about anything here. And I would argue at the moment, I, I would describe 2021 as the year of living dangerously. I don't think many people feel we're in an environment that there's any danger at all. And I look at this and I think it's one of the most complex sort of situations to assess that I have ever seen in my investing Career and the reason I say that, if you if you ignore the virus at the moment, and you're just saying is what we're doing is we're vaccinating people, that's all going to work. And at some point, end of this year or next year, the big question in markets is: Are we going to get inflation, and what does that mean for monetary policy, and could that disturb markets or not? That is a complex equation. Thinking about the interest rate markets and whether inflation comes or not, and you know, that doesn't worry. We, we think about those things all the time. If we really got inflation and in 2022, the Federal Reserve started tightening monetary policy because inflation was coming, hold on to your chairs. That is so ugly for markets, it's not funny. But if we, if we get just not much inflation and rates stay really low with all this stimulus, we're off to the races. 
So in the absence of the virus, you'd say you just have to answer those questions. I don't think that many people are even thinking about that inflation risk that markets could be in for a really rough ride if that was, I'm not saying that's going to happen by the way, but it's a very genuine question. But it's much more complex than that at the moment is because of the virus. And people assume that the virus is over because we have these vaccines. And I go, only if it was that simple, and it's very hard putting probabilities, but this virus is mutating and we know it's mutating. So far, if you'd read all the signs, none of the mutations we've seen is likely to evade the vaccines. And that's what we're seeing in South Africa. They're not evading people. More people are getting sick, but they're not going to hospital once they've been vaccinated. So everyone goes, oh, well, this is fine. The vaccines are fine. But that's just a picture today. What we don't know over the next few months or six months, whether or not we get a mutation that renders these vaccines ineffective. And there've been some very interesting lab studies that I don't want to go right into them where exactly that happened in exposing them to antibodies. And I think there's a 50-50 probability that in the next six months, these viruses are going to evade the vaccines. And 50-50 is a very polite way of saying, I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't think anyone else has any idea, but because you're hearing the vaccines are holding up against the variants we see today, everybody's relaxed about it. And then they also hear, don't worry, we can just recode the current vaccines for any mutations. You can't confidently say that unless you know what the mutations are. And and some of the mutations that are happening, like this South African mutation, is actually a charge change. So it's gone from positive to negative charge, and it's now repelling the antibodies. So I'm not sure how easy it is to recode for what is known as E484K and make antibodies that will now attach to that zone here because it's a change in the structure around that part of the spike protein. I don't think it really matters because we still know that the vaccines are working in other areas to stop getting sick. But the chinks in the armour are being attacked every single day. And depending on on that chink, and we know it's going to keep happening. So what happens if we wake up in three months' time and now we start getting evidence that the current vaccines no longer work and we're in this euphoric mode that all these bets have been put on and then we start finding evidence that maybe it's not so easy to recode for? I'm not saying this is going to happen, but it's absolutely in the viewfinder if you study the science. The scientists are terrified of this. And yet the markets are just like, let's just get caught up. Let's buy Bitcoin. Let's do all this other stuff and let's ignore all this complexity. Therefore, I'm saying it's the year of living dangerously. This And, and the lesson you asked from 2020 is this could rapidly unravel as quickly yeah. as it's raveled up. That's yeah. a lesson to take out of 2020 <laughs> and it will depend upon it. And I say it's a question of nature. Nature will take its course. It will do whatever it does. And we are at at the mercy of how nature evolves. And I'll tell you, I don't know how it's going to evolve. So we're a little bit risk averse uh, here because we, we we don't know. Mm. Um, on speaking of, you know, unraveling quickly and the year of living dangerously and, you know, not being sure what could happen, one thing that Bryce and I are particularly interested to get your thoughts on are um, current valuations and how you're thinking about valuation. You know, we had Howard Marks in his recent memo uh, discuss the perils of traditional value investing approach. Uh, you know, some of the uh, valuations we're seeing in the US seem very stretched. Um, how how are you thinking about current valuations? And then just more generally, how are you approaching that task in 2021? Well, the first of all I'd say is in the end, value metrics always matter. 
you know, as, as Ben Graham, who wrote The Intelligent Investor, said, you know, in the short-term markets are a voting machine, in the long-term they're a weighing machine. Um, you know, so you can get a huge amount of momentum that has no connection to valuation metrics in the, in the, in the short-term, and it's all about storytelling and everything else. But in the end, there's a day of reckoning, and, and what really matters is valuations. And, and valuations are very, very simple. It's the cash flow of business can generate between now and judgment day, and you have to discount it back at an appropriate discount rate, and you get the value today. That doesn't mean companies need to earn money today, and that's what Howard Marks was talking about, that you could have businesses like Netflix that are on very, very high P multiples, but we can see a lot of value there because we're making the prediction about what cash flows this business is going to generate in the future. And when we discount it back at sensible rates, we think it's undervalued. And so you could do the same thing on Amazon that's trading at very high multiples. But then there are other businesses that that I would like to see people's assumptions they're making on Tesla <laughs> at the moment of doing actually doing a discounted cash flow analysis of what market share assumptions they're making, what margin assumptions they're making, and at what time period they're assuming it's going to be earning enough cash flow discounted back today that justifies an $800 billion valuation. It defies any, any sort of logic of reality, and in my view, of making any sensible assumption. But crowds can can move in directions that can inflate these things to extraordinary uh, levels at the end of the day. So, so ultimately, valuations will come home to roost. In the end, Tesla will reflect its sort of discounted cash flows in the future or whatever that profitability is. There are areas of the market that just look crazy to me where there's a lot of crowd-like behaviour around them, but there are other areas that where we see a lot of value, particularly defensive equities. Every There's been this massive rotation into this sort of uh, opening up scenario in the and the stimulus, there's a huge amount of money that's been there. Some of these pre-money sort of sort of you know uh, cult-like areas where there's a huge amount of money that's gone in, but but other things have been left behind. There's some consumer staples that are trading at their lowest multiples in ages, and nothing's changed um, are there. And of course, one of the biggest judgments you have to make in that sort of intrinsic value, not only have to try and predict these coupons in the future, and that 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 can be hard here. The other thing is what the interest rate is. And, mm. and it's it's very difficult to judge where our interest rates going to stay at this low level. Um, Buffett describes interest rates as the gravity of market. So as you lower interest rates, assets are worth more in a discounted cash flow basis. And if interest rates go up, assets are worth uh, less. So you have to make that judgment call. But I, but I don't think any of the, the fundamentals change. Uh, it's just in sh- over periods of time in the shorter term when things are going up, you go, oh, well, they don't matter anymore. Of course they matter yeah. uh, in the in the end. Now, Hamish, I'm sure we could listen to you talk about investing all day, but um, we are we are nearly reaching the end of our time. We we do like to finish with uh, the same final three questions, so we'll move on to them. But uh, before we do, uh, if people want to find out more about yourself and Magellan and your podcast, um, where should they go? Are there any particular social media that you're particularly active or anything like that? Yeah, I would say probably the best place. We're pretty old-fashioned. Probably go to our website, then it will direct. We've got to sign up for any stuff. Our In the Know can be found on all the podcast uh, services. We do call it a video stuff as well, but largely that's distributed via we, – we put that on our YouTube channel and we put that on our, uh, on our, on our website and In the Know is on all the, all the podcast services. You're not on TikTok yet, Hamish? I'm not on TikTok um, uh, just at the moment. I, I need to I need to widen my views, but I notice some of my kids spend hours on it. And I, I come know. back hours later, 
and they're still just flicking the finger. I'm like, <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing? It's crazy. Goes, Dad, it's really funny. Yeah, crazy platform. <laughs> yeah, we're uh, we're dabbling, but uh, trying to figure it out. It's it's a whole different world out there. Yeah. So we'll get to these uh, final three, Hamish. Uh, the first one is, do you have any books that you consider must-reads? Well, reading is one of the very important things. I, I think, you know, we never stop learning. And I, I could probably give you a list of 100 books that I think are almost must-read uh, books, but I won't that do that to you. I, I'll split it very carefully between some investing books and probably non-investment areas where I would suggest people reading I find fascinating. Of course, the, the all-time classic is The Intelligent Investor by, by, ben, by ben Graham. Um, it's quite a technical book. It was written by in the 30s, but there's two wonderful chapters. Of, uh, one of the chapters is on margin of safety and the other chapter is about Mr. Market. And those two chapters are probably two of the most important chapters that have ever been written in in investing. So you probably don't need to write, read the whole book, but I'd really suggest you read two chapters out of Ben Graham's Intelligent Investor. Another book that people may not have read that, that I really love, it was a book called The Wisdom of Crowds uh, by James uh, Surawatsky. And it is, it, if you want to really understand sort of crowd behaviour and what happens, it is a very, very good uh, book. And on the same sort of topic, there was a book that was written a long time ago by Charles Mackay, uh, and we've sort of touched on this a little bit, and it was called Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. Uh, and, and if you've seen what happened on a GameStop and you're, and you're looking what's going on in Bitcoin, um, and, you know, I had a friend the other day who said, look, his 90-year-old mother, she really wanted my view on Bitcoin because all her friends are talking about it and, and she thinks she should take some investment in it. Maybe she should read Charles Mackay's book in that. I think one of the all-time classic sort of collations is, is another book by Lawrence Cunningham. It's called The Essays of Warren Buffett. So what it's done is taken all the annual reports he's ever written and it's assembled all the different stuff into different topics. Uh, and if you, if you ever want to learn from Warren Buffett and if you're interested in investing, that's probably one of the greatest collections of, of distillation of sort of Warren's thinking over his lifetime uh, put into one easy consume uh, uh, book. Uh, just outside the investing thing, a book I really loved was a book called The Perfect Weapon. Uh, and it was by a guy called David Sanger. And, and, and it's really talking about cyber risk in the world and cy cyber terrorism. It, it's a great read. But, but this is one of the great dilemmas of the 21st century um, uh, cyber risk in, in the world. And, and the last, I'm not going to give you a particular book because there's a numbers here, but if you really want to think about the future of humanity, and, and it's something I'm fascinated about, and particularly the involving of artificial intelligence, uh, anything that Ray Kurzweil has written on this topic is really worth uh, going to read some of Ray Kurzweil's stuff. But you can listen to what Ray on YouTube and other things and, and get a snapshot of, of, of sort of, and it really bends your mind about, you know, where humanity could be headed. Mm. So the second question, Hamish, is in 60 seconds or less, what's the best company you've ever come across? Yeah, unfortunately, it isn't Magellan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're working on it. <laughs> uh, and it actually isn't even Berkshire Hathaway, uh, I would say. And look, I, I, I think it's a really, really difficult question to answer because I think probably the most powerful company that's ever been developed is still evolving. And it's probably hard to really pick which one it is at the moment. Amazon would be right up there in the, in the list of probably the most powerful 
company ever been created. But e-commerce is more competitive. Their, their advantage is obviously in AWS and their advantage is in, in infrastructure they're building out. You know, Alibaba is extraordinary in, in, in China. It's, it's sort of an Amazon lookalike. Alphabet probably has a depth behind its its research base that, that no company's seen, but it's difficult to pick which one you would say because they're still work in progress. Mm. They're, they're really some of the most powerful businesses that have ever, the world has ever, ever seen. Mm. And, and therefore, they're going to evolve and competition's going to evolve. So, so, they, so we're watching a movie, but we haven't got to the end of the movie yet. So I put those top three um, up there. If I had to pick a company that is just going to endure the test of time, and this person hasn't built all the brands, but they've been put together. LVMH, I think, is extraordinary. You know, these bands have 200-year history. So I think they've, they've – and you're never going to form a new Dom Perignon. You're never going to form a new Louis Vuitton, mm. you know, or a Christian mm. Dior. This is sort of game, set, a match. And if you want to win a single brand, it would probably be MAs as well. Most companies disappear after 30 or 40 years. These brands have been here for 200 years. There's very, very few things who have got duration like that. Bernard Arnault, who's one of the richest guys yeah. in the world, has seen this and has put this collection of businesses together in, in LVMH. But I find it hard. If I One, I would be 100% confident that they will never get a road in next. This company's going to be here in 200 years. It'll probably be LVMH because I just don't think consumer habits are going to change over that, that, that period. But which one is going to turn out to be the most powerful business the world has ever seen you know i would say maybe amazon or alphabet would be in the in the front of the queue here uh, but it's still the game's still playing yeah yeah then final question hamish if you're thinking back to you know when you uh, were first starting out as an investor finding a way to buy west farmers shares at a 30 percent discount um what advice would you give to your younger self well, the first thing I'd say is you need to read, read, read. You know, how did I get to that West Farmers franked income investment? I asked early on the librarian to put every broker's report that came into Schroeder's I worked at every single day on my desk and I probably got six inches of broker's reports. And every night at about 10 p.m. I'd sit up at home and I'd read every single broker's report that came in. So there's no substitute for hard work and, and reading and, and you have to have patience in this game. So read, read, read patience starting early this is a compound interest game if you want to start accumulating knowledge and start investing when you're 50 closer to your retirement you kind of lost all the advantage of time uh, here so you know unfortunately you have to uh, spend less than you earn uh, and I know millennials aren't very good at that, like, <laughs> like, 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 like that it's all live today and don't worry about tomorrow but you know if you really want to get ahead financially in life you, you want to be a little frugal early early on and you want to start the compounding game um, early on and you really need to understand. I used to have when I was sort of 15 and 16, I used to have compound interest tables up on my wall. I was probably a bit of a nerd. I don't think a lot of people had that. But I was enamoured about duration and you know, I used to go out to 30 years and at different rates and seeing what the multiplier was and I'm going, is I just have to have time. You know, one of my problems in life is I'm running out of time. Uh, in my scale of it, I'm, I'm 52, <laughs> but, you know, and, and and if you're young, the advantage you have is time and you need to understand that time is your real friend mm. when, when when you're young and don't waste it, don't waste the time. And the only last thing I'd say is enjoy yourself. You know, just don't get too obsessed about making money and all those things. You have to enjoy yourself in life 
as well and enjoy your friends and, and and everything else and you know to some extent i worked super hard when i was in young and maybe i overworked when i was young i used to work seven days a week i was probably working 12 to 14 hours a day i did that for years and years and years and years maybe i should have taken that foot off that accelerator slightly uh when i was younger but i've got I, i've got no complaints well, Hamish, we truly have enjoyed this conversation with you today. As we said at the start, it's been something we've been looking forward to for a while. So thank you very much for your time. I know our audience certainly would have got a lot out of uh, this conversation. Um, looking forward to seeing you grow Magellan to be the best business that you've ever seen. <laughs> and uh, yeah, thank you for your time. Hopefully uh, we get to chat to you again at some point this year. Bryce and Alec, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'd love to speak to you guys again. Thanks, Hamish. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. 